Well, I think you have to start with the word carefrontation. Like we have a thing where I care about you, but we're going to have to have a confrontation. If I'm not having carefrontations daily, then what am I doing? This isn't all cupcakes and roses. You know, this is about winning. And if it's about winning, you got to be growing. If it's about growing, you have to be honest. If it's about honest, you have to go at guys and out them in a way that they know you care. Welcome to Slapping Glass, where we explore basketball's best ideas, strategies, and coaches from around the world. Today, we're excited to welcome the head coach of Hartford men's basketball, John Gallagher. Coach Gallagher is here today to discuss leading through adversity, the value of community, healthy confrontations, the ins and outs of a 1-3-1 zone and switching defenses, and we have too much fun talking upset analytics and working referees during the always fun start, sub, or sit. We are excited to announce the launch of Slapping Glass Plus coming on May 16th. Our membership community, which gives access to Slapping Glass TV and Netflix-style platform of all of our breakdown videos, the premium Sunday morning newsletter, a private coach's corner community, and more. Please visit slappingglass.com for more info. And now, please enjoy our conversation with Coach John Gallagher. Coach, thanks so much for taking the time to talk to us. We're really excited to have you. Dan and Pat, I'm big fans of you guys. I'm fired up to be here. Thank you very much. We appreciate that. We're going to start with talking about where you're at right now. You know, things have happened, obviously, the last week with Hartford going from Division One to Division Three, and, and all that that entails. And I know that's been an interesting time for you and the program and the school. You know, in interviews leading up to the NCAA tournament, you mentioned how making the NCAA tournament, you felt like Andy Dufresne the end of Shawshank Redemption, kind of crawling through the mile of uh, the muck and whatnot <laughs> to make it to freedom. And the feeling you had kind of making the NCAA tournament after building towards it for so many years. And then the difficult news coming the last week of moving from Division One to Division Three. I wonder about the kind of narrative and the feeling now for both you and for your program. Now, what's the next step forward after you've kind of made it through the mile of the muck? So. You know, we can compete for the NCAA tournament next year. We don't move the Division Three to 2025. And I'm just going to say right now, I don't think we will move the Division Three. Cooler heads will prevail in the end. You know, that's just one guy's opinion. So what do I think? It's really an interesting thing. I think for our program and where our neighborhood is, our guys came together on Friday. And I said, look, you guys have to decide what you want to do here. You know, everybody that was in that room made a commitment to each other. We have couple transfers coming in that are, you know, really talented. They committed. So, you know, we're going to really play this season out with a major chip on our shoulder. Our first practice is May 16th, which is next week. And I can't wait to get in the gym with the guys. I'm as excited about coaching this team as I ever have been in coaching. We're going to challenge them in the schedule, but to say that it was easy or, you know, I handled it. Look, there's a time where this place no one knew about. And for the last four years, we've been on this climb where it's the four best years in school history. We've won four straight high major games four years in a row. We are relevant in mid-major basketball now. Yeah, That's a credit to all the players. That's a credit to the staff. And to have this happen to you, you know, my college coach called me and I was crying on the phone with Phil Martelli and very emotional. And he has a quote that he reads every day. He said this to me, the great politician, John Lewis said, I'm done with things happening to me. I'm now on to why they happened for me. Yeah. When coach Martelli said that to me, first off the coaching profession, the guys like Mark few that reached out to me and spent 45 minutes on the phone with me, the coach at Hartford, you know, Jeff Van Gundy spent 30 minutes on the phone with me. You know, all the coaches in the country that reached out, this coaching, we get a bad rap. Let me tell you something. 
the best people in the world are coaches because they really, really care for the business. They care for each other. I'm touched by the people that reached out. Coach, the first thing that comes to mind when you said you're going to use this as a chip on your shoulder, as a rallying cry, how are you going to frame it? Because is it going to be an approach? Is there going to be resentment towards the university from the players? How are you going to kind of use this rallying cry? Resentment will not be one thing that we even go into. Mm-hmm. Okay. Because when you live with resentment, you can't have joy. It robs you of joy. Yeah. We're not going to have any resentment because resentment blocks creativity. Resentment blocks the joy of why we do what we do. So we're not going to have any resentment. Okay. It's a dark room in a bad house. What we're going to do is we're going to look at what we have the best team in school history returning, a coaching staff that's as detailed as any staff in the country a program that's running on all cylinders right now. I'm not stopping. We're not stopping that. Like May 16th, it's going to be like we're preparing for a game in two weeks. And that intensity, we're going to film practice. We're going to break it down. We are going to run it like, you know, I always say, when I got the Hartford job, it's going to be run like Duke, like Carolina. And that's how you have to get it there. You have to to claw. And now here we are. Because we can beat anybody next year. And that's the edge I'm creating with our players on May 16th. There'll be no resentment though. Coach, maybe zooming out from your situation just a little bit and more broadly with coaching through difficult times in general. I mean, Pat and I were talking beforehand about how, you know, this year, a lot of coaches didn't get a chance to coach a season or, you know, with COVID situation all over the place, clubs shut down in Europe or all types of difficult times. And then as a leader, how you kind of help navigate through those times and how you help your team stay focused and moving forward through a difficult situation. There's a book out I would have everybody read in the country. It's called Awareness by Anthony DeMello. And I think this time you have to be aware. And what aware of what? Aware of everything, aware of what you're going through. Awareness creates great opportunity and gratefulness. You want to talk about difficulty. People don't realize we had our championship game taken away from us against Vermont a year ago. And then we come back and the week leading up to the game, I'm thinking, is anybody going to test positive? How do we like the fear? So what you have to do when you have great fear, you have to focus your energy on everything that is positive and everything that is you have. So like every time you take the floor, You may not take it the next day because you might be on a pause. Yeah. So embrace the moment together. Love each other. You know, that's the thing I think this has created. Your mindset as a leader of a program has to be focused on what you can control and you cannot put energy on things you don't control. Coach, another thing we were talking about off air, which, you know, I think helps when overcoming adversity. And like you said, having, you know, your team sticking together, no one transferring is coaching with authenticity. And can you speak a little bit about what that means to you or what is coaching with authenticity? 10 years ago, I got the job here and I kept saying, you know, I was this 33 year old genius. I was a genius. Just ask me. Okay. (laughs) (laughs) And what happened to me was I got my head handed to me and I talked about We got to be more competitive, more competitive, more competitive. And we got to get more competitive players and competitive. And about five years ago, I was like sitting on the beach, Ocean City, New Jersey, and I'm reading, you know, all different stuff. And, you know, something popped up about authenticity. And I just started thinking, what if I got my players to be the best individual player he could be by being himself? And what happens is by them being authentic, they're way more competitive. It's way more natural. Mm -hmm. Instead of focusing on, I need you to be competitive. I don't even talk about competitive anymore. It's not something you bring up or play hard. Not playing. What is that? (laughs) What is that? If you naturally are who you are, you're going to play hard. You're going to be competitive. That's some of the transformation for me. And it starts with really the difference between truths and beliefs. 
And I was a belief guy 10 years ago. This is what I believe, 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 believe. Throw the beliefs out, fellas. Give me the truths. Marry yourself to truths. And you start getting energy. Because you know what? You'll do anything for your personal truths. Meaning there's a fire where truth is. Where beliefs are, you hang your hat. That's where the ego lies. The truth doesn't lie with the ego. Coach, what are some of those truths for you that kind of drive you as a coach? Why do I coach? So I coach. So one day we're going to have two tables at your wedding. If I can't sit down when you're 25, 30, 35, have a cold beer with you and talk about the days of playing, I don't want to coach you. I don't. So I have to first find the guys that really fit the neighborhood. So that's a truth. And when you find that and you embrace that, man, the fire you have and the momentum you have every day coming together, you go out in our gym, you come May 16th, there will not be an energetic, fiery group like ours. The next truth, on the basketball side, you have a couple of them, right? The truth about your practices. So then that, that gets in there. Not about your beliefs. This is about your truths. This goes across basketball everywhere. Yeah. And I think that change, uh, we could get into that if you want, but yeah, defensively, we weren't good enough four years ago. We weren't good enough. And then that evolution of getting way better defensively to now, this is our best defensive team. And I told the guys, like, we're not going to win it. You cannot win an America East championship if you're not the best defensive team. And at the end of the year, we were the best defensive team two years in a row. So that's why truths are what everybody in basketball, they hold themselves self-evident. Okay. A ball screen. You know, I don't even care. That's secondary to me on what we do on ball screens. It's that we take it personal that how we're going to play the ball screen. Right. Yeah. Do you follow me on that? Yep. Yep. So we could debate how, uh, you know, like for Baller, for instance, who's the best team in the country that defended Baller this season? It's Iowa State. Not even close. Watch every game. What did Iowa State do? The number one three-point shooting team in the country. They went under. You know why? Because they stayed connected. Mm-hmm. Over here's my point. What's the truth? The truth is, do not let the offense get in a domino. Don't chase it. So now... I don't care how you guard a ball screen. You got to make sure that you're not chasing. And now we could talk about why Iowa State did it, how, why they were so successful. But at the end of the day, they did not let Balor get into where they were in a domino. Boom, boom, boom. And then, because I saw it live. Coach, kind of one more authenticity question for me, maybe before we move into some of this X and O stuff you keep dangling in front of us and we're trying not to take... (laughs) too early, (laughs) but you know, you talked about authenticity in your players. I think when people hear you speak coaches out there listening to you speak right now, and I think that know you, you come across and are very authentic as a person, as a coach, but you know, a lot of us starting out, a lot of coaches, when they're younger, you're kind of imitating coaches that coached you earlier in your career, trying to be like someone maybe that was your coach or trying to steal that. But where does that line go from where you go from imitation as a coach to then authenticity, like we're we're talking about. So it's phenomenal. So that's why I love this place so much. If you want to really know the truth is this, it gave me the time to be John Gallagher. Early on, I was trying to be this guy, that guy, this guy, that guy. I go into a summer and I would learn so much about different things. I had to start peeling away everything and get to what my wisdom as a coach is. And when you have wisdom, you have to unlearn a lot. And I'm not talking about X's and O's. I'm talking about communication. I'm talking about the way I communicate with my players. You know, I was focused on the tricks of the trade, not the trade. Now, how does that happen? I think for me, this is me, not everybody else, but I need my back against the wall. It's the Delaware County, the Delco in me, the Irish kid, you know, my grandfather was a trolley driver. My dad was a crane operator before he, he became a, a lawyer. By the nature of who I am, I have to have my back against the wall and I have to create that. And that has served me well lately. And <laughs> what I'm saying is the people that now see it, I was almost like afraid to be me. When your back's against the wall, you can't think. You, you're just living. 
and you're coaching. And these last four years have been riveting for me. My wife and me talked about this this morning. Could I not coach? And I looked at her and I said, there's no shot. <laughs> it doesn't matter where it is. Doesn't matter. I have to be in this, that fire, the purpose of living. You can feel it from me or you can't feel it. If you feel it, I want you around me. If you can't feel it, then I'm not, I'm not your apple. Coach, I'd like to just quickly ask about, you mentioned you learning to communicate or becoming a better communicator. What were some of the pitfalls you were making earlier on in your career that were hindering you? Great question. Assumptions. Weak leaders assume. I assumed they understood me. Yeah. Let me just tell you, I told my staff, why are we winning now? I said, we don't assume anything. Yeah. We don't assume anything. The leadership books I read now are way different. They're Anthony DeMello, The Untethered Soul by Singer. Like the mind's great. We're going to create this, this, and this, and this, and this. But I'm, I'm here. I'm a heart guy. I'm a soul guy. I love those in-depth conversations. I love listening to them. TED Talks and all this. At the end of the day, how are you coaching from your heart and soul? And your players feeling it because if they feel it in tough times, like you get told you're going to move to this division and no one blinks. I told our staff, I said, Friday afternoon, I felt, I, I don't think you could feel as good as I felt when those players said, no, we're not leaving. We're staying with you. Uh, you've mentioned a couple of times about other coaches that have reached out to you offering, you know, whatever words of wisdom. What's some of the best advice you've received from others at this point? about the situation you're in? Mark Fuel. <laughs> I don't know where he comes from. He's like, <laughs> honestly, he's from another world, how he is and he, how he thinks. I mean, I'm just in awe of, first off, how he treats people, how he treats our profession. You know, I think he is the de facto leader of college basketball coaches. So he called me and just said, John, here's what I'm going to tell you. You're a startup company that was just bought by Microsoft. You have 300 days left as the CEO. <laughs> <laughs> right, yeah. We can get the team to the tournament. Let's do it. Let's keep on being the best startup that Microsoft has. Because yeah. if you do that, it will end up great for everybody involved. I'll never forget. I was coming out of the, uh, this parking garage in downtown Hartford. And I'm thinking, that is unbelievable advice. <laughs> And then he gave me like three things he'd be doing every day with my players. He made the points like, John, look, you just had the four best years in school history. You make it to the tournament. You have two championships games in a row. You have a year. This is going to be the funnest year of your life. You need to make this the funnest year of your life. Well, it's great advice. And uh, obviously coming from someone who uh, knows a little bit about coaching, we've been itching to get into some X's and O's stuff with you as well. Let's do it. We like to move into talking about, I know you're a fan and, and have done much of it of one, three, one zoning after timeouts, late in the possession, late in the game as sort of just an overall scheme and a way to kind of approach defense. So I like to guess I just throw it to you to start to talk a little bit about why you do that and how you use it. First thing is if you go against a one, three, one in a late game situation, you take their best play out of the game. Their offense, their man-to-man -man play. Take it out. Yeah. Second, you end up putting them in a position where the guy that's supposed to shoot the shot likely won't if you play your defense right. Three, the rhythm of going against a 1-3-1 one, one in the last play of the game. Whew, I want to take my chances on it. So I am a big believer in it. And when Porter Moser at the end of the Illinois game went one, three, one, I was, cause I was yelling, we got in an argument. I was yelling at him. You got to do it. You got to do it. Sometimes he did it against Illinois late in the game. I was laughing because the one, three, one, especially on sideline out of bounds, late in game, you end up putting a team in a position where they're thinking more than playing. And in late game situations, let's get them thinking. Yeah. Coach quickly with the one, three, one, are you looking to trap anywhere? No, not in late game. We have it in the package. We can play our one, three, one, six different ways, really. Yeah. Is the top guy flat or is he stunting? Is the middle man dropping or is he coming high? Is the guy in the back line or what we call our rover? So our one, three, one is called rover. 
Full disclosure, stolen from John Cheney. I was Dan Leibowitz's assistant. Dan runs the SEC now. I stole every nook and cranny. You know, Fran O'Hanlon, who I work with, had a great line. He said, uh, steal from one person, it's called burglary. Steal from many, it's called research. <laughs> That's right. That's basically what we do. Yeah. Here. That's it. That's it. So I, I've stolen from probably everybody. So the one, three, one, the backline guy, does he go to the corner? Does he stay on the block? So if he stays on the block, your wing guy, he's got the corner responsibility. Then now you're, now you're mm-hmm. rotating more, which I only like to do on certain situations. I like the guy in what we call our rover man mm-hmm. to get to the corner. And then the slides, we drill the slides and drill the slides. So there's no thinking. If you have to think about slides in your one, three, one, it's a terrible one, three, one. Yeah. Okay. Terrible. Coach, just curious, what are the situations where you won't run that rover man out to the corner? You got a guy that's 6'10", 280 and can't move. Okay. Fair enough. Yeah. <laughs> so like, if I'm going to put a guy back there, it's because we scouted it and we figure they're below 30% from three that they have a couple guys out there below 30 from three. Mm-hmm. So shoot it you know, by the numbers. And then two is, is their scheme. Anytime you play a, a Rover, you're looking at in your mind, is it personnel, right? Is it a KYP situation where you think it's a personnel or is it your personnel? Yeah. Are you trying to protect fouls? Are you trying to protect one player on the floor? There's different factors on why you do it. Coach, sticking on the, the scheme of the one three one, you mentioned there's kind of six ways you would do it. I think the one thing for coaches, it's always difficult when you switch from a man-to-man to a zone, especially in late game, late clock, is the fear of giving up an open shot, potentially. But in the beginning of this, you kind of mentioned if it's the wrong guy or a different guy, then you're okay with it. I guess, how do you come to grips with yourself that if you go to the one through one you may give up an open look within it as opposed to stay man-to-man and maybe being more locked in that way? It's a great question. So, Here's the thing about the one, three, one in late game situations. The thing you shouldn't give up is a three because you're extended. Right. The thing you're going to give up is that opposite elbow pass. And if you're up and they get that shot, you're living with it. So that 15 foot elbow shot is what's vulnerable. And I'm telling you right now, that's the shot we want to give up. We have to say like, all right, is it more than a one possession game? Right. Are we fanning out here on the one, three, one? So it's our extended. Now, look, against high majors, like early in a game, you'll see it with me. I'll play it real tight. So I'm going to give up threes. Late game, I'm going to extend it. There's going to be holes in it. I don't mind the two. Without giving away all the details of it. but I- I'll give you every detail. <laughs> okay. I'll give you every well, detail. I can send you the whole sheet on how we play Rover. And I'll send I'll email it to you. You can put it out for everybody. Okay. He's in my league can know. You can... I, I, Look, okay. it's not what we write down. It's how hard it's got to be a part yeah. of our personality as a team. For sure. So with that said, in the late clock stuff, especially, I'm thinking you come out in the one, three, one, but then is there an indicator where you might switch into a man or are you staying one, three, one the whole time? So we have a thing we call Cherokee. If it hits the corner, we can go two, three, or we can go man to man. So it would be Cherokee 11 or Cherokee. We stay in it. And what happens is if we stay in the two, three, what the backline guy, who's usually my big guy, drops to the opposite block. Mm-hmm. So imagine this. He's coming down to the opposite block. The two guys, so now you have your middleman, he dropped down, and your two wings slide in, and they're in a two, three now. Okay. Now you can match up man to man where you run the guy down. He matches up with the big because he's, he's my four man. My five man's in the middle. He's dropping down and then we can match up man to man. Following up on that, I guess I quickly want to talk about that one man in the one, three, one. So is it usually going to be a bigger man that you're putting up there? Always. My bigger guys have to be in the middle of this. Okay. You follow me now? Yeah, I follow you. My two biggest guys I want at the top and in the middle. And with the guy at the top, you mentioned on there's different ways. Will you have where he's square or when will you shade where you, I'm assuming you want to try to prevent them from reversing it. Totally on who we're playing. Okay. So if I shade it, it's a high level three point shooting team because I don't want them reversing it. Yeah. If I flat, it's I'm choosing to lose by the three ball. Okay. I don't mind the quick reversal. We're good with it. Coach, rebounding is always a little bit of an issue in zones and sometimes one through one. How do you teach rebounding? You got to drill it. 
uh, one day I was with Jim Beheim recruiting. Fascinating. He drilled. He said to me, yeah, we drilled out of the two, three, we drill rebounding out of it more than anything. Different spots on the floor. So we just created spots. Okay. You know, spots on the floor where we block out. So if you're at the top, you have this area. If you're at the wing, you have this area and you got to drill it and drill it and drill it and drill it. And that's the thing is like, I never drilled it four or five years ago. Well, I drill it now. Oh. You got to drill it. And then yeah. if you can't get it, you got to tip it. Okay. And I know coaches out there don't like that. Let me tell you something. If I can't get it, let's, especially in a zone, let's create as many 50-50 balls as we can, because we're going to get those. We're going to live off. That's what we talk about. It's not 50-50 to Hartford. It's 90-10. Mm-hmm. You got to drill that. Stan, on the drills, how do you drill a zone defense? So it's three stations. We got a station coach here. He has the wings. We have a station coach down the other end. He is with middleman and the top guy. And then you have a station coach down the other end with our rover man. And that's the guy getting the corner to corner. Can't leave the block until the ball's in the air. And that's a big drilling. The wings are on the other side and you're drilling everything on the wings. The middleman and the top guy are, you know, and I can even send you May 16th. We're going to drill it May 16th. And I never assume, even if we go back to day one with everybody. And we'll drill it and drill it and drill it. And the middleman and the top guy, you know, that coach that's responsible for it, he knows during the game, he is coaching that spot live during the game. And that other coach is the rover guy. And that's the energy you have to have. With the wings when you're drilling it, are they shading any one way to, you know, if it's going to be a quick reverse, are you telling them, hey, be in that passing lane to the corner, we'll give up middle if you have to, don't give up baseline. So they cannot allow direct line passes from top to corner. Okay. They cannot allow direct line passes. When the ball gets over his head, he is sliding to the elbow. We drill this more than anything. It's two hard slides with your left hand out extended, and you are occupying the elbow. When the ball swings out, this is really, really important. You have to sprint at him. I mean, there were great guards at Temple, Lynn Greer, Leonard Stewart, Pepe Sanchez, no one guarded in the one three one like Pepe Sanchez. No one, no one, no one. I mean, it was amazing. It's like artwork to me. It's like watching <laughs> art, the way Pepe Sanchez guarded, the way Ling Greer guarded. They would attack the top foot, and you have to almost make them dribble out. And that's what Temple did better than anything. They played angles, and they put heat on the ball. Like it was personal to them. Like this guy's got to dribble that way. And a one dribble away throws the rhythm of zone offense out the door. So coach, I'm trying to visualize. So if the wing is guarding the wing and it gets over him to the corner, you want him sliding to the elbow. I don't want him turning. I want him dropping his foot and taking two hard slides to the elbow. Okay. The Rover man is coming out hard. He's forcing to the middle. To the elbow, I'm coming out and I'm almost, you know, we even say like, be so physical with them that he's fouling me. He's, we want to be physical. Okay. And then we want the ball driven back out. If it's driven back out, that's where the corner guy, like if I get in the corner, I drive it out. I'm attacking him. The middle man's now rising back up to the elbow Mm -hmm. and being physical. And then they're driving it back up and we're attacking top shoulder. Now the split man's up top. Yeah. He's not letting a quick reversal. Now watch, this is really important. As he drives it up and the wing can drop back down. And so it's almost like we're pushing and pulling with each other. How much do cuts, are you worried about cuts in the zone? Like if they throw it to the corner and that wing makes a rim cut, how scared are you of cuts against the one three one within the rotations? So since I go against it all the time in in practice and I toy with it, the problem with cutting against the one, three, one is you're not cutting like a two, three zone. Cutting against a two, three zone is the way to go. Absolutely. Cutting against the one, three, one, there's not great rhythm to it. So what do you do? Like if if I'm going against me, I got to get the ball to the opposite elbow and then I got to cut from the opposite elbow. Yeah. I can't cut until the ball hits the elbow. You follow me? Opposite elbow or opposite corner? You're, you're cutting from the opposite corner. Got it. You're running right to the rim. 
my old assistant was at San Diego and we were in a postseason tournament. And you should get that. That's how you tackle one, three, one. Nobody could score against us. My old assistant, Chris Curlison, who's now in Hawaii, we're in the first round of like the CIT against them. Chris, I was like, let's just see what he has against it. It was like elbow <laughs> cut dunk. I was like, let's get out of it. Let's get out of it. I'm done. Yeah. <laughs> Coach, just back on a somewhat of a philosophical question here with zoning and manning and mixing defenses. Yep. You know, as coaches, there's always these, I guess, schools of thought of I'm a zone coach or I'm a man coach and we're staying man. And then there's like this middle area of switching defenses and being good at being a switching defensive coach. How do you prepare your guys and a lot time in practice to be both good man to man and also be good in these one three one situations so that one doesn't struggle over the other. So there's the Tony Bennett, you know, Steve Donahue approach where it's this is who we are. And I love that. I admire it. It's not me. So what does that mean? I'm so impressed with Tony does and what Steve's done at Penn with his defensive numbers. It's really impressive. And I've debated the zone with Steve ad nauseum. There's a level of surprise that I love about going zone. There's a level of, you know, I think you have to, you have to decide, is it surprise? Or are you going to hang your hat being, I think you got to be rock solid, but I'm not throwing the zone out there without putting hours and hours of practice in it. I'm not just throwing it out there to surprise you. I think I can get a stop in it. Yeah. I think it presents problems. I think I'm a guy where you have to have multiple ball screen coverages. When you go against the lead offenses, you have to make them think. Uh, same thing with zone. We have to make them think and we have to be an elite defensive team, but you got to work on it. I believe in the element of surprise because I think you can really surprise people. Like you go back, Davidson, I know I'm, I'm crazy about this game. So Davidson plays Gonzaga in the first round uh-huh. when Seth Carrick was there. Bob McKillop is down, I think, nine or 11 in the game. Go back and watch it. He has not trapped a ball screen in weeks. He goes and traps Gonzaga on a ball screen. They steal it. They lay it in. And now they go on a roll. Sure. There's possessions in games where your rhythm is not there. You just can't keep doing the same thing. You have to change it up. And that's as when you cook, you know, I want a little spice today on the pasta. Well, <laughs> I want spice today. Let's, we have to change it up. Coach, another philosophical question. Me and Dan always like to talk about, and we stole it from Coach Liam Flynn, about the tax of the defense. So when you're going to switch to a one-three-one late game, what would you say is the tax of that defense? That if a young coach was going to run it and this outcome happened, you'd say, that's fine. That's kind of bravo to the other team, but it wasn't like a failure on, our, on the defensive part. I like that tax on defense. What I think is goes back to you choose the way you win and you choose the way you lose. So for me, late game, I'm choosing a 15-foot jumper from the opposite elbow every single time. Mm-hmm. I'm not giving the corner three up. I'm not giving the three up on the pull-up. And I'm not giving the three up on a reversal. Yeah. What I am giving up could be a large drive where he's going to have to finish above my six. You know, in the, At the end of the game, we go big in the back. Yeah for a lot of reasons, we go big in the back at the end and I'm going to make him, I'm, I'm, we're going to go vertical and we work on it. We're going to go vertical and play it high. The tax on the defense is what you're giving up. You're not giving up the corner three or the opposite three. You basically have four guys fanning out and you got one guy that is playing the rim. Coach, kind of on this same topic, but moving to the other side of the ball now a little bit with the rise of switching on defense more and more at all the different levels. And maybe more specifically, your thoughts on attacking a switching defense, but more later in the possession. So instead of kind of an overall, hey, here's how we attack switching, you know, you're under 10 on the shot clock and a team is switching all the ball screens or switching all the, the pin downs or flares. Your thoughts on the best ways to attack? Well, when I was a young coach, it was, man, I had no clue. So in my mind, I'm thinking, you guys got me like thinking about my first or second year here. <laughs> so we have a thing called four on O. We do it every day. Stole it from Stevie Dunning. And every single day we do it. There's not a day we don't do it. Let me just repeat this. There's not a day. And, you know, we have this thing where we call brushing our teeth. 
you know, we're going to brush our teeth today and that's our formula. So if you don't brush your teeth, you don't have nice teeth. If you don't do this every day, you're not going to be a good offensive team. So we're going to slip it. If you're switching, we're going to slip it. We're going to drive the slip. We're also going to fade a lot and slip the fade. We're going to drill out of this 4 on segment every single day. So it starts with the alley, skip one more. Alley, skip one more. Then we go dotted, which is where we get out of bounds and we throw it to the corner. And then we reverse it. Nobody shoots a shot during the whole drill. Don't shoot a shot. This is like how we end up playing with each other. And then we, we work on our Ellison cut, which is Malik Ellison played for me, played a pit. No one cut to the rim like him. So then we work on that. Then we get into our switching. So we get into ball screen. We hit. We slip it. We hit the slip. Then we get an Ellison cut. Then we can hit the Ellison cut or skip it. This is every single day. So in a game, when I see them switching, I'll come to a timeout. I'll say, guys, do you know they're switching? This, you know how exciting this, is, this next four minutes is going to be? We're going to carve this up. We do it every day since May 16th, every single day. And then in their mind, their eyes get, you know, they light up. You know, we played Vermont in the semis this year. And John Becker came out. By the way, John Becker is one of the best coaches in America. Vermont's head coach, unbelievable coach. I have so much respect for Vermont and, and what they do. But he comes out and he starts hard hedging, you know, in the game. And I, halftime, I'm like, and we're down one, or we're up one at half. And I said, guys, this first four minutes, we're going to go on a roll. You can't say that if you don't drill every day different concepts of what you're going to see. So every single day, we're choosing one or two things on how you're attacking it. And when I worked for Fran O'Hanlon, he had a great line on his motion is, guys, when they're switching, do not set one screen. Blur everything. Sprint through everything. Get them chasing. But here's the kick. You got to drive it to the paint. You got to touch the paint on switching. If the ball doesn't touch the paint off of your, you know, drive the slip, drive the slip, drive the slip. If the ball doesn't touch the paint, it plays right into the defense's hands. You got to wound the defense, wound the defense. It's like a boxer. You got to jab, 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 and the jab is driving it to the paint. Coach, sticking on that drive the slip, my first question is, what's the timing of the slip? And for the penetrator, is he driving? Is he, I guess he's following the slip in to drive in? Or is he driving or penetrating? Great question. So we talk about the arm length. First off, on the pass, right? We work with our bigs. When you release the ball, you're trying to catch your own pass. Okay. So I can't stand when my big passes it and his first step is a clumsy first step. We got no shot if you're not sprinting into it. So we want to catch our own pass. We talk about catch your own pass, sprint into it. Once they're switching, we have to get to a place where my arm can touch your shoulder. Really important because if you go one step and slip it, it's not a slip. It's a cut. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> okay. It's a cut. So what we want to do is we want to be able to touch our teammate. Once we're able to touch him, we slip it down to the rim and then I'm driving off your tail. Okay. That's one. Two, I hit big four man hits. I don't go in, into the ball screen. I go opposite. I bring my big up. So my big's on the block. He's coming up. We set, you know, we go up and set a, um, how do you guys terminology that? Like the flat screen? We set the flat screen. We go up and set a flat screen. The flat screen on a wing ball screen, if you have a really good penetrator uh, and he can take his time in it, you end up getting the big on an isolation. You get cuts to the rim, drive the slip, get the flat screen involved. And then the third layer is get reversals to get a fade slip, fade yeah. slip. Those three things we work on all the time. Coach, those three things, does it come out of uh, just the way that your conference plays a lot of the time or just years of having success or not success against the switch? Where do those concepts come from for you? It comes from a combination of not having success yeah. and working with Fran O'Hanlon at Lafayette College. Best offensive yeah. mind ever, ever was around, ever. For instance, we'll do two minutes of one on L, just catching, footwork on catching. Then we'll go two on L with the coach. 
So you pass mm-hmm. you two on out. You may say, well, how long are you doing this for? It could be 90 seconds. Yeah. yeah. We call, we have a Home Depot drill. It's called Home Depot. Why? If you want your house to look good, you got to get to Home Depot once in a while. Okay. <laughs> that's right. So Home Depot is one on out. We do Home Depot. Okay. Okay. And that's on how we catch, how we catch, you know, 90 seconds, Home Depot. Then we go two on out. We're still, you know, still on our Home Depot stuff. What are we doing yeah. on two on out? Fade, cut, fill, all our fill stuff. Then we get into three on out, three on out with a coach. Then we get into our four on out. Then we get into five on out. And that's going to take 30 minutes every day, every single day. Yeah. And then we get into live. And then look, I have a thing called the mini game because I wasn't, on, we weren't on edge in the middle of our three on out. I could blow the whistle, drop the ball and say mini game. And we're live four minute mini game at any time. Love that. And then we're live in it. And it's 52-50 or 52-52. You know, the thing I stole from Fran for show, and we work on this all the time, coming out of halftime, coming out of halftime, is your team ready to play? Are you yeah. ready to go? And if you look at us, we're, we've done a great job coming out of halftime. Do you know what? Fran doesn't even know this. It's because of Fran Fraschilla. <laughs> we work on it once a week, coming out of halftime. And you'll laugh, like May 19th practice. We're coming out of halftime. We're into it already. Coach, one more like itch I'd like to scratch with you before we move to the start sub sit kind of on some of these offensive unique situations is offensive rebounding offense when you don't have a put back right away. So the shot clock resets, you don't have a put back or immediate kick out for a shot. What type of offensive concepts do you get into? Cause the shot clock is saying now it's 16, 17, 15, and you don't have a, maybe time to run a full set or a play. What are the concepts you guys play through on that type of situation? We'll get right in the hit the elbow and we're playing our run ats. So we'll get right into it. Hit okay. the elbow. And in that situation, off a, if you can't get a quick three, right? By the way, Ballard did an unbelievable job offensive rebounding kick out for threes. I think that it's frightening watching them on film how good uh, Scott Drew, he, he deserves to be commended because they do an unbelievable job of it. Yeah. So what we do is, we're trying to get a quick three. If we don't get it, we do not want to take a guarded bad shot. We talk about it like, let's keep making them work. We just made them guard for close to 30 seconds. We got an offensive rebound. They have to guard us another 15 to 20 seconds. Do not let them off the hook. We talk about it. We got to punish them right now. And you don't punish them by taking guarded, quick, bad shots. You got to emphasize just to kind of further on that point, I guess sort of drilling that situation. And the reason for my question, coach, is just the situation came up recently for us in the past years where the shot clock would reset to only 20 instead of back to a full 30 on an offensive possession. And as a coach saying, okay, do we have them ready enough to not look over at the bench and say, hey, should we run a set play? Should we do this? But just like you mentioned, keep flowing in your offense on an offensive rebound rather than pulling out to the top and calling a play because there's not enough time. That brings up a great point. When the guys look over at you at the bench, like right. I'm like, what are you looking at me for? <laughs> now, if I say pull it out, that's different. But like when I have a kid transfer to me and he's coming to me from a place where, you know, I'll like have to say like, yo, my man, like this is basketball. You have to play. I'm the coach. But like you're looking over at me on a broken play. You know, when you were in sixth grade, did you look over at the coach? Let's get back to instincts. Let's get back to flow. And look, if I have to run something, I want them looking over at me. But like, I want the juice with them. So they understand on a broken play, on an offensive rebound, it's aggressive. It's to the rim. It's not settling. There's nothing worse than taking momentum and handing it to the other team by taking a bad shot off a broken play. Yeah. Absolutely. We'd like to transfer now to a segment that we always do here that's a lot of fun called Start, Sub, or Sit. And so for those maybe listening for the first time here, how it works, we're going to throw three different scenarios or or situations at you. And we're going to ask you to start one, to, to sub one, and to sit one. We've had people trade the sit. We've had people, you know, cut the sit, but whatever you want to do with those. 
And uh, we'll just have a little discussion from there. So for those listening, we haven't given you these beforehand. So yep. these will be just off the cuff. But we want to start with your high school coach, Bud Gardler. Quite a coaching tree has come from, from that program. I know someone that's meant a lot to a lot of people. We've had two other guests on the podcast who played for Coach Gardler in high school, including yourself. So now we'll have three different coaches. So uh, Gina Oriema, Yukon. Coach uh, Steve Donahue from Penn and now yourself all played for Bud Gardler in high school. The question is, start, sub, sit. Who do you think <laughs> Coach Gardler would start, sub, and sit as a high school player between those three coaches? <laughs> By the way, I want to say this to you right now. Bud is in heaven right now laughing. Okay. <laughs> so... All right, I'm going to just be very honest here, okay? Okay. Start. Well, I started for him for three years. The other two guys did not. Okay. 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 Right. So I'm, I'm going to put myself as the starter. Okay. okay. Sub. Oh, gosh. <laughs> so this is a coin toss, but I'm going to sub Steve Donahue. Okay. And I'm going to sit. Just because the way Bud... <laughs> would uh, want to bring Gino down a little. You know, that was Bud's <laughs> thing. I guess we could say maybe not sitting Coach Oriema, but maybe like the seventh man where Donahue would be the sixth would be the, the, well, a better I think, option. I think realistically, <laughs> Gino should start because he's the most famous guy of all time <laughs> in, in our coaching tree. And I can, I can sit because I'm the youngest guy and I haven't won as many games as both those guys. So let me sit. I'll change it. But understand that, Back in the heyday, Steve could not guard me. Steve Dunning could not guard me. <laughs> okay. okay. Well, <laughs> oh, that's good stuff. By the way, Bud had this great, he, I got to bring this up because Bud would love this, but Bud had this thing where if Talkin were playing, there'd be a lot of great players. Right? That was Bud's biggest thing. And then Bud was that guy that never complimented anybody, right? He just wouldn't compliment many people, but he always gave you like, when he complimented you, like I was a sophomore starting in the Philadelphia Catholic League, and it was like the biggest game. We're playing Roman at Roman, and he had this line to me, like before the game, he's like, nobody realizes how tough you are. And I'll never forget. I was like, did he just say that to me? <laughs> I played like out of my mind that night, right? Because Bud Gardner just said that to me. Like, that's the way Bud was. And he ran it like a college program. He was, you know, really close with UB Brown, really close with Rick Pitino. He was a five-star guy. He was the first like guys at five-star. And Bud was a basketball savant. Coach, that just brings up an interesting topic, complimenting your players. Do you make an effort to, to make sure you're complimenting them daily? Or like you said with Bud, maybe you can use it strategically where not that you necessarily always have to be a hard ass or negative with them, but you know, if you use it strategically to get more out of them, how do you approach complimenting your players now? Well, I think you have to start with the word carefrontation. Okay. Like we have a thing where I care about you, but we're going to have to have a confrontation because if we're not dealing with truth, they're going to think, man, this guy is so full of it. So we want to have a lot of honest conversations. Carefrontations. So you understand where I stand. And you know what? I'm going to give you a chance to talk. So I understand where you're coming from. And that's where my communication's gotten much better. If I'm not having carefrontations daily, then what am I doing? This isn't all cupcakes and roses. <laughs> this is about winning. And if it's about winning, you got to be growing. If it's about growing, you have to be honest. If it's about honest, you have to go at guys. And out them in a way that they know you care. By the way, this isn't something I read in a book. This is my failures as a coach. This is a, my failures as a coach that made us start winning. This is a formula, my truth of what I've learned. So complimenting is a big part of it. But if you don't have carefrontations, compliments mean nothing. Love that. So. Start, sub, sit. We know you played Baylor in the first round of the NCAA tournament. So just what goes into 
trying to pull off the upset. So start, sub, or sit, playing a different style than your opponent or looking at your role players and that they have to play great. So maybe, you know, if we're going to upset them, our players four through eight have to play above their heads. Or the third, a statistical battle. We're going to play who we are, but we have to win these three things. Start is uh, your role players have to play great. Sub is the stat battle. And then the third is the first one you said, which is the hardcore game plan, because it's important, but your subs have to play great in those games. Have to. Yeah. Just following up on, let's say, the stats. What When you were going in that Baylor game, what were you communicating to your, maybe your team or your staff? Like, hey, we got to win these things. It was a 10-10-10 game. The proverbial 10-10-10. Another thing I stole off the great Steve Donio is 10-10-10. We have to make 10 threes. We have to have less than 10 turnovers. And they can't have 10 offensive rebounds. If you do all three, you can win those types of games. You do two of the three, you lose. If you do one of the three, you lose. If you do none of the three, you lose by 20 like we did. (laughs) (laughs) So my my follow-up, Coach, is sort of the concept of preparing for great teams. As a staff, are you looking at it from a player-driven standpoint of like you're looking at their best two or three players and trying to figure out how to stop them? Or are you looking at their overall scheme and saying, we're going to try to slow down different parts of what make them a good team? I guess, how do you look at trying to prepare for really good teams? That's the balance. So when you go against the top 10 teams or the 20 teams in the country, it's a KYP, know your personnel game. And then on the flip side is it's got to be a scheme game too. So you got to devote the same amount of time to each. When you go against certain teams or below average teams, you can pick, sometimes it's a personnel game, sometimes it's a scheme game. In those top 20 games, you have to be great, great at both. That's why, like, if you look at what Porter did in that Illinois game, you know, if you go back and watch it, he played three different ball screen defenses in one possession. That is years of practice. We talked about it as a team afterward, you know, Can we do what Loyola did in a big spot? Like, can we do it this year in a big spot? Because if you can do it in a big spot and play three different ball screen coverages, you have a chance to beat them. But that commitment to detail, you know, we have a thing called smaller the detail, greater the value. That commitment to detail doesn't happen by showing up in September and saying, hey, that's why May 16th is our start date. Yeah. And sticking with the Baylor thing too. And, you know, you guys went in as a, a 16 seed. You and your staff and your players all are aware of the history of a 16 seeds record against a one seed. How much do you embrace that as a coach and talk about it? Or do you ignore it and just talk about what you do? Did you bring it up at all with your guys as far as like what the situation is? How did you handle that so that the guys were ready and hungry to you know play against Baylor? I didn't bring it up, but I just brought up that this is not the NBA where it's a seven game series. This is a one game shot. And we have the personnel and we have the team and the, the chemistry to do this. It was a lot of excitement because if you go in, like we were up 14, 13 with under eight minutes to go. And this yeah. is a funny story. <laughs> I went to the timeout. If you actually, if you go back, you look at it. I go to my staff, the, the CBS pans in on us. I literally go like this. We should be up 14, five and it's 14, 13. I said, this isn't going to end well here. Because our best player, one of our best players got hurt in the first 16 seconds of the game, I ended up turning and I knew when we were up 14, 13, man, we should be up like 14, five or 14, seven. And it was a one point game up. That's when I realized how good Baylor was really. I mean, that I knew that after that game, they were rolling to the title game. Well, coach, we'll keep moving then through start sub sit. So my next one for you is if you could be the best team in your conference, in one of these three statistical categories. So start subset being the best rebounding team in your conference, the best free throw shooting team in your conference, or the best three-point field goal percentage team in your conference. Defense or offense? So offense for three-point field goal percentage. Wow. You want to talk about transformation? Yes. Here it is. Okay. <laughs> transformation. Seven years ago, six years ago, it would have been three-point field goal percentage, one. Today, it's rebounding. One is rebounding now. Two is free throw shooting. And three, sit would be 
three-point field goal percentage. You can win championships, the start, the rebounding, in big games in March, you got to rebound. Yeah. You got to make foul shots. You got to make foul shots. Those two, you can win ugly and get it done. You talked about, if we would ask this six or seven years ago, I guess, why the change? Back to the authenticity. Who am I as a kid? My dad, before he became a lawyer, was a crane operator. My DNA, the grinder, the kid that find a way. Yeah. You know, we, have, we, have a, we have a saying, you have to be able to lie down with pain. You have to be able to sleep with pain. If you sleep with pain, you can be great. I was trying to be a coach like, let's score 80 a game. And I love, I, I think you can do that. But the, the bottom line is what wins championships is the guys that can sleep with pain. And the rebounding is you can win games on the rebounding. And we work on it now. I never worked yeah. on it. I, I, I thought, oh, come on. Let's be the best offensive team in the league. You know, Coach, when you work on rebounding, are you working on just building the mentality, the habit, or are you actually working on like how to box out? We don't do rebound. Yeah, that's a good point. We, no, that's a Majerus thing. We don't do a rebounding drill. Shouldn't say that. It's the emphasis. It's everything. It's everything. Mm-hmm. Majerus never did a rebounding drill ever. You know, talk to Porter about it. When they were at St. Louis, they, everything was a rebounding drill. Every drill was a rebounding drill. Yeah. And that's what I've, the transformation to me is that's probably what I've emphasis on it. Having an assistant coach drill it. So coach, you mentioned that the transformation, you know, if we would ask four or five years or six years ago, but then, you know, you've had four of the best years in program history. Do you attribute some of the, success recently to the, maybe the mind shift for you from more of an offensive to more of a grinded out rebounding type of style? Absolutely. It's been the transform. It's absolutely, it's been, you know, everything you do is gotta be about winning in March. Yeah. Win in March, win in March, win in March. And when you focus on winning in March, usually you're not getting far off of defending and rebounding. Sticking on that winning in March and stats, is there another statistical category we haven't talked about that you are looking at as you approach this next season that you think can help you win in March? Yeah, great question. I think deflections and steals, mm-hmm. direct correlation, making people uncomfortable. Yeah. Everything has to be about making people feel uncomfortable. They have to feel your energy and your excitement to defend. We love defending. Six years ago, we were trying to get the offense. We get so much momentum from our defense now and the excitement of getting stops. And you got to celebrate the stop. Like you got to, yes, yes. Like, oh, good. They have the ball. They have the ball to start half. Yes. (laughs) Let's go. In terms of generating steals, of course, it starts with phenomenal or great on-ball pressure. But what are you looking then for maybe the other four players? Are you, having, are you trying to play higher in the gaps to maybe be more aggressive and, and going for steals? Or what's your philosophy there? No, we're, gonna, we're not going to deny that. We're going to be you know, almost in fake help you know, in gaps and back to the ball. But a lot of it, honestly, the transformation has to do with taking it personal, taking it personal. So you know, in the summer here, we'll play a lot of one-on-one, <laughs> one-on-one. Like how many guys go out and just play one-on-one for 15 minutes? We're going to do it this summer. Let's get great at winning the one-on-one battle, mm-hmm. you know, winning the one-on-one battle. I'm good friends with Mike Lombardi from the NFL, does that NFL stuff. And Mike yep. Lombardi, when you study a player, is he winning his one-on-one battle? Offensive line, defensive line. It's same thing with defending one-on-one. Are you winning the one-on-one battle? All right, coach. My last start sub sit. You're unfortunately, you're down 20 in this situation. So you're in the wrong end of a blowout. Things that will take you from mad to just nuclear. You got a starter chasing points. You have a rogue bench player just kind of, you know, trying to get his time to shine. Or a showboat dunk by your team. All three are starters. Okay. <laughs> yeah, yeah. All three. I'm not joking. First yeah. of all, 20-point game, the starter's not out there. Okay. Yeah. Second thing is, I'm calling timeout, and this sub, I'm like, this isn't working. 
And then the showboat dunk is an apology by the guy to the head coach after the game. Are you insane? Are you crazy? <laughs> yeah. And by the way, this is a good one. You want to hear a good story? Okay. <laughs> I'm in like my first or second year and we're down 25 and I'm all over this referee, right? <laughs> so my phone rings after the game and it's Fran Dunphy. Okay. It's like, look, man, we're from Philly. We have a rule. If you're down 25, you can't yell at the official. <laughs> Shut up. <laughs> so I have a rule. It's the Philly rule. If you're down 25, you can't. the last thing you do, when I see a coach go off down 25, I think, man, he didn't have Fran Dunphy in his life. <laughs> we don't talk to the officials down 25. <laughs> Coach, just because Pat and I did talk about this beforehand, I want to just throw up a, a bonus start sub sit at you. It has to do with referees and, and working the refs. So start, start sub sit, riding the referee hard to, you know, maybe negatively to, to get calls, using humor or trying to be his friend or her friend, or just leave them alone. I'm a humor guy. So it's start sub sits a humor, ride them as uh, <laughs> the sub. And the set is do nothing. Okay. <laughs> Coach, I just, in, in researching and going, getting ready for the interview tonight, you had a great quote. You were mic'd up once and uh, you mentioned to one of your staffs that, hey, get me a mint. The ref's not talking to me. I'm not getting any calls. I must have bad breath. <laughs> it, was, it was a fun nugget to find in my research. It was So early in my career, I'd ride them first. Right. Okay. Which wasn't smart. Now, 12 years in, let me tell you something. The respect I have for officials is immense. Sure. The job they do is tremendous. What they had to go through for COVID, they were tremendous. I mean it. It was tremendous. So yeah. I'm grateful for them. And and listen, I have a great relationship with these guys. Great. You know, I, I want to say this. Three of the heads of officials at the high major level. The SC, head of the SEC officials, the head of the Big East officials, and the head of the ACC officials all reached out to me on Friday. Cool. That shows you the character yeah. of that group to reach out to me. Yeah, it's amazing. Well, hey, you're off the, the start subset hot <laughs> seat. Thank you. That was fun. <laughs> you crushed it. Can't wait to uh, see your, your text from Coach Donahue after you know him yeah. coming off the bench. <laughs> Saying he can't guard you. Yeah. <laughs> well, coach, first of all, as we kind of uh, end the interview here, uh, thank you for your time this morning with Pat and I. We, we really appreciate just you coming on and, and lending your time. We had such a blast talking to you. So thank you for that. This has been tremendous. And uh, I love, love listening to your stuff. And, you know, you guys inspire a lot of people. And you got to realize that this is the best podcast because the authenticity of it, you can feel it. And, uh, uh, you're such an asset to the game and your help growing the game and anything that the neighborhood can do. I don't know if you wanted to finish up talking about the neighborhood, but I just want you to know that this neighborhood is far and wide. We're grateful for Slapping Glass and Pat and Dan. And you guys just are special people. Thank you, Thank coach. you, Coach. It means a lot. And it does lead right into kind of our last question and topic here, which is the neighborhood. And it's, I know something that you've just been growing and building and, you know, it's become a, a deeper and deeper value to the community there over your time. And I want to finish with asking you about the neighborhood itself, but then just the importance of coaches everywhere, building community around their programs and the value that it can provide outside of just the game itself. First off, when I grew up, you play with a guy or you, you know, I played at St. Joe's and you have your friends or you have guys in a community. And the line when I grew up was where I'm from and Delco was, is he a neighborhood guy? So if I didn't know somebody and you said, is this guy, is this, is this guy a neighborhood guy? If you had a blink, it, it wasn't good. You know, you're whoever you're mean. So you knew to stay away from that guy. If it was John, this guy's a neighborhood guy, take care of him. There's no questions asked. You just took care of the guy. And I wanted that in this program. So if you wear a jersey and you stay here, you're part of the neighborhood. And that means something. What's it mean? It means something in the community, what you're representing. 
the branding piece, I'm not big on branding, but it happens to be a huge thing now, you know, nationally, you know, that neighborhood. And it happened by accident because a marketing person here said, we're the capital city team, capital city team. And we had two of the best years, two years ago, and we're sitting, my assistant said, you never say capital city team. Why? Tom Devitt, my assistant, I said, Tom, we're the neighborhood team. We're the corner bar guy. We're the cop. We're the firefighter. We're the mailman. We're the CEO of Hartford Healthcare. We're the, you know, Laz parking guy. We're the neighborhood team. And from that moment for the last three, four years, it's been just the neighborhood. UConn's the state school team. They deserve it. Okay. That's great. (laughs) I love Danny. I, I root for them. We're the neighborhood. And the neighborhood is people that never think they're big time, never think they're bigger than anybody else, always are going to greet people, always are going to hold the door for people, always are going to try to treat each other with class and dignity, class and dignity. And, you know, that's what we've tried to do. You know, I'm a prayerful guy. So the neighborhood is a spiritual thing our neck of the woods, but the neighborhood goes for all the former players that are all the way everywhere else. Yeah. And it means something. So my advice to young coaches, find something that resonates with people in your community. Find that word, find it, embrace it, love it, but don't try to create it. It'll create itself. Let it create itself because if it creates itself, you have a chance to explode. And that's what it's done here. That's great. Coach, the experience of the last month and a half, say from making the NCAA tournament to what's transpired at Hartford recently, anything you knew that you've learned about yourself as a leader through the kind of ups and downs and the sort of fleeting nature of the business that you'll take with you? Guy called me. uh, He's the CEO of Hartford Healthcare, Jeff Flax. He's one of my best friends in the town, right? He's an amazing guy. But he called me and said, you work best out of the corner. <laughs> <laughs> and I have no idea what the future holds. I think we'll stay division one. I do. Okay. But I know the next 360 days will be division one in the next four years. I guess there are plans to go 2025. My thing is for the next year, getting to the NCAA tournament. That's what we're doing. That's what we are doing. And we're going to chase it. And that's all my focus and energy is on. And I can't tell you if I've learned one thing is guys like me or where I'm from, you know, I didn't know I liked to get punched so much. (laughs) And I took a punch. That was a punch. But we have the best. This is going to be, I'm just telling you, this is going to be such a fun year. And we have the best team in school history coming back. And one of my best friends passed away. He was 40 years old. His name is Mark Quinlan. He used to say when he, he used to go to the casino, right? And he would say, don't blink, don't blink. And, you know, I'm not blinking. Thank you so much for listening to this episode. Please make sure to subscribe to our Sunday morning newsletter for additional insights on this podcast. Have a great week coaching, and we'll see you next time on Slapping Glass. Do we have a name yet for this thing? I have like Slapping Backboard. <laughs> slapping Glass. <laughs> slapping Glass. That's kind of funny. I like that. Let's roll. <laughs> slapping Glass.